just a shorter time than normal this morning, just to set the scene really for this book of 1 Samuel. And uh, the book is in two parts, uh, and essentially it's a book of beginnings. The first part of the book introduces us to the key character, Samuel, and Samuel is the first of the prophets. It's the beginning of a very important kind of ministry that's going to flow right the way down through the Old Testament, through Jesus himself, and on into the church today. He still gives people to be prophets. People that will speak God's word in season and out of season. People that will bring challenge and rebuke, as well as comfort and encouragement. So Samuel introduces us to the prophets And then Saul, the second part of the book, introduces us to the first king, which he was, of Israel, the line of kings that goes through David and Solomon. Then again, not surprisingly, onto Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. You picked that up so far in these eight weeks. It's all about Jesus, king on through to Jesus. Uh, And we too are called to be heirs to the coming king and his Kingdom. So it's a book about beginnings. We look at the first half uh, briefly this morning, which is a very gloomy time. As we've been thinking about the book of Judges, a very kind of violent, depraved uh, time really in Israel's history. Lots of rebellion going on. And uh, the, the book of Samuel brings that period uh, to an end. Solomon is ref- uh, Samuel is referred to the last of the Judges. And so quite typical of this time of rebellion and judgment and growing inertia, we read in verse 1 of chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare. Was rare. There was no vision. There was no sense of what God was longing to do. There was little direction. It was a far cry from the hope and enthusiasm and anticipation that had been with God's people as they'd entered the land a few generations ago. Things were so bad that Eli the high priest had two sons that worked as priests in the temple. They were in charge of the sacrifices, the dealing with people's sins. They were abusing their positions of power. You can read about that in chapter 2. They were so abusive they would sleep with the women that served at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the entrance to the temple. They were in, in, in effect turning those women into cult prostitutes, which was just the same as the other nations. We can be like the other nations. We want to be like them. A theme to which we'll return in a moment or two. Furthermore, uh, Eli was maybe more used to seeing people slightly inebriated, slightly drunk in the temple than someone passionately praying. So when Eli sees Hannah and she's pouring out her heart to God in Samuel chapter 1, he supposes she's had too much wine. This was a bad time. No vision, no direction, no purpose, no hope. But, And there's always a but in God's kingdom, isn't there? Always a but. But, however bleak the picture, somewhere with someone, God is at work. And it's always thus. Have you noticed that when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt, and it looked like nothing was happening, God was calling a man Moses over here. 
Did you notice when Naomi and Ruth and Oprah decided to make that journey and then Naomi and Ruth went on last week and it seemed like nothing was happening. All hope was lost. God was at work in Judah getting things ready. Did you notice that when Israel, uh, the Jews were being crushed by the Romans and they longed for someone to liberate them, God began to work with a young couple called Mary and Joseph. You see, somewhere with someone, God is always at work. He, He never leaves himself without a witness. I want to ask you about what's bleak in your life, in your experience today. Maybe it's the whole of your life. I hope not. Maybe it's a part of your life. And as this book opens, I want to challenge each of us, however bleak it seems just now, where is God at work? Because somewhere, with someone, God will be up to something. That's the story almost of every page of the Bible that we're going through this year. It might be really hard for you to think like that. I understand it's a difficult thing to do because we're consumed sometimes by the bleakness and by the fog. But I want to ask you, where might God be at work today? Where? Look for it. If you seek him, the Bible says, you will find him. That's the promise. So in the bleakness that you find, in that part of your life where you sense there's no vision, no direction, no purpose, in that part of your life where it feels like all hope is lost, would you look today, where is God at work? Because somewhere, with someone, God will be already at work. And here in Samuel, the first opening chapters, we don't need to look very far to see where God is at work. In the temple there, there is a woman who's crying out to God. Her name is Hannah. She's barren, unable to have children. Her situation is compounded because she's the second wife of Alcana. He he has two wives. His first wife apparently is breeding like rabbits, lots of sons and daughters. And that just makes the situation for Hannah even worse. To complicate matters, her husband loves her more than the first wife. So there's this duel, this rivalry, this jealousy that's going on. And we hear the cry of Hannah. Verse 7, this rivalry went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Hannah, her husband, would say to Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? No, (laughs) says Hannah. No. But Hannah does the right thing. So you're in your bleak situation. I'm asking you to think about where God might be at work. He's always up to something. Where is he up to? What is he up to and where in your life? And then Hannah does the right thing. She brings it all to God. Remember Naomi who went back to God's people and said, I'm I'm really fed up. It's like God has been harsh to me. Call me bitter instead of pleasant because I'm fed up with what God seems to be doing in my life. She was honest with God. The same way Hannah, she's honest. God's big enough for our honesty, our frustration, our anger. And she pours it all out. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord, angry and resentful, shamed and hurt, and she pours it all out. And she makes a promise. 
It's a promise maybe out of desperation, for sure. Her motives are mixed. Undoubtedly, all our motives are mixed. We are mixed up people. And we do the right thing with right motives and wrong motives all mingled in together. And here she is longing for God to do something for her. And she knows this. If anyone can help, the Lord can. If anyone's responsible for opening and closing wombs, God is responsible for those kind of things. If anyone can bring hope to her life, then it's the Lord that can do that. If anyone can bring this whole nation out of the desperate time that they're in right now, then it's God that can do it. And so she says to God, making a vow, verse 11, O Lord Almighty, the Lord that can do anything, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. If you bless me, if you hear my heart's cry, I will turn that blessing that you give to me into a blessing to others. I will give my son back to you for your service, for the blessing of many. And by the way, I will not have his hair cut. How weird is that? Because I know, Lord, that you like men with long hair. All the men with long hair are going, told you. (laughs) How weird's that? What What does that mean? Well, you've been reading through Numbers in your soap, and you will have come to Numbers chapter 6 which is all about the Nazarite vow. When Hannah says to the Lord in her culture, in her context, I'm not going to shave his head. Ping. The Nazarite vow. Samson didn't have his hair cut. At least, not willingly, anyway. He was a Nazarite again from birth. Numbers chapter 6, we haven't got time to do the detail of this this morning, but the Nazarite vow was something that God offered his people as a way of living, like a a multifaceted fast. A way of living that said to God, I'm going to give up all of this because I'm desperate for you to do this. And just like you would in a fast, you deny something because of a desire for something greater and better. So the Nazarite vow was a vow you could take for a period of time, a few months, a year, several years, and you would do several things. You would deny yourself several things as an indication of your desire for God to break through in your life in some way. And the things that you would have to abstain from, first of all, was alcohol, no wine, And this is not about a drunkenness or an inappropriate use of wine. In that culture, they use wine all the time. You're nudging your neighbor, see, told you. And I don't drink at all. But there it is in God's word. Because wine was the way they celebrated. Wine was the way they gave thanks. Wine was the way they partook of the festivals. And so to abstain from wine was to affect every aspect of your life, every social moment, every marker in the months and in the years in which you're abstaining and taking this vow. Second thing you shouldn't do is cut your hair, and we'll talk about that again in a moment. Third thing you mustn't do is go near a dead person. 
because that would make you ceremonially unclean. It was a sign of you taking this vow to be separate and different. And then fourthly, at the end of the vow, you would go to the temple and there was a list of all the things that you needed to take to the temple in order to sacrifice, to offer to the Lord. And then you'd have your hair cut and your hair would be thrown into the fire and the smell of burning hair... Ever got the hair dry too close? Yes, a distinctive smell would go through the temple and everyone would know that person has taken a Nazarite. That person is desperate for God to break through in their situation. And what you needed to take to the temple was so expensive that you couldn't dream of doing that by yourself. It was like a super yacht, a mansion in the, in the country. You know, it was way beyond your means as a, as a normal person. So you would need to gather your friends and family together in order to fulfill your duty, uh, the duty of a Nazarite vow. It was a way of saying to God, God, I'm longing for you to break through in this situation in my life. So let's go back to Hannah, to the main plot. Hannah is saying to God effectively, look, if you bless me, then I will give my son back to you and he will be unusually a Nazarite, not for a period of time, but for the whole of his life. A Nazarite from birth, like Samson was, like Samuel is, like John the Baptist will be. Set apart for the whole of his life as a plea, as a longing. God, we're longing for you to break through. We're fed up of being in this place of no vision, of no purpose and no hope and we're longing for you to do something in our day, in our time. And so Hannah says, Lord, if you bless me, I will release my son back to you, that he might live a life of of longing, of pleading, of crying out to you to break in, that we might see the situation in which we find ourselves now, with the word of the Lord being rare, be totally changed into a new situation where the word of the Lord is uh, revealed. So, there we go. Uh, The Nazarite vow. And in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. Was it wrong for Hannah to cry out to God to bless her? I don't think so. But that's often where it stops for us, isn't it? I long for you to bless me. And God goes, why? And we go, ooh. Hannah was clear. I long for you to bless me. And I will, I promise, I vow to use that blessing to bless others. That was the deal last week. Can you remember with uh, Boaz, the big theme of Ruth? What is that reminding us? We are called as God people to be a, to be a blessing. How much of a blessing are you? Hannah's saying the same thing. Lord, if you bless me, I will use that blessing to bless others. And have you noticed the more you seek to be a blessing, the more you find yourself blessed. The more you give, the more you receive. It's the upside-down kingdom to which God has called us to. So Hannah kept her promise and she gave Samuel back to the Lord. And I expect the end of this verse to read, she worshipped the Lord there. Hannah But no, it's Samuel. Samuel as a young boy moves into God's inheritance, God's purpose, God's plan for his life. And he begins this life of worship and service that actually was going to see a significant change take place in the nation because of his 
obedience. So there, as a young boy, Samuel is rescued to become part of the rescue of God's people. God calls us to do things when we're old. Uh, Barbara was saying earlier on from Numbers. God calls us to do things when we're young. Dwight Moody, who is a famous evangelist, who was, sorry, a famous evangelist, uh, in the line from which the likes of Billy Graham came, uh, one of the very early altar call kind of evangelists. You know, you come forward and your coaches will wait for you and all of that stuff. And uh, Dwight Moody went to preach one evening. He got home in the evening and his wife said, how did it go? And he said, well, two and a half people got saved tonight. And she says, what do you mean, two adults and a child? He says, no, 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 two children and an adult. The adult wasted half his life before he came to Jesus. There's something about being rescued when you're young. Samuel was in that category, and he went on to serve God all the days of his life. So we've got big picture. So because of one woman... At a time when the word of the Lord was rare, when vision was lost, God was up to something, and as one woman cried out to God as the only hope, God answered her prayer and raised up a young boy, Samuel, who would be a blessing. And he would bless because he would be the one through whom the word of the Lord would be revealed. And there's such a difference in those two periods in a community's life. When the word of the Lord is rare to when the word of the Lord is revealed. And you can follow it in chapter 3 and in chapter uh, 7 uh, 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 in your own time about how the, the word of the Lord comes uh, and makes such a difference in the nation. There's a, a, a renewal of the people that's talked about in chapter 7 and the whole nation is brought back to God. They get rid of their false gods and they focus and hope begins to rise once more. So so how did Samuel become the conduit through which the word of the Lord was revealed? You see, in the New Testament, Paul says, eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. Thank you, wherever that came from. Eagerly desire the gift of being able to reveal the word of the Lord. We should look at Samuel and think, I want to be like him. I want to be someone who grows into this ministry of helping people connect with God in a way they would not have connected if I hadn't lifted the veil, torn back the curtain, whatever metaphor you want to use, of revealing God's word. Well, there were two things that Samuel did, I think, that made him ready, a posture of readiness for hearing God speak and therefore revealing God's word. The first was acts of service. Our Canai went home, he was the dad, but the boy, Samuel, ministered to the Lord under Eli the priest. So he became a helper in the temple. What would a helper in the temple do? You would clear out the dead carcasses. Remember the bulls and the lambs and the sheep and all that stuff? You would sweep the floor. You would clear out the old wood from the fire. You would deal with the ashes. You would wash the garments that were covered in blood and dirt and grime. Was it kind of prestigious? Was it kind of the the job every young boy? No. No. But he was faithful to God. And he served him. And sometimes if we want to be people that open up God's word to others, God says, are you ready? Show me. Show me that you're 
ready. Get on with, just begin to serve and show me that you're ready. And the second thing was not just so much his act of service, but his attitude of surrender. Story is told in chapter 3 that perhaps is the most famous story that many of you will know of how uh, Samuel, still as a boy, he's sleeping. He's sleeping next to the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones, where are the tablets? Eat your heart out. He's there, sleeping right next to them. Lighten up. It's not in the Bible about Indiana Jones. You know that, don't you? Yeah, that's just a film and stuff, yeah? It's truth. So, so he's there, sleeping in this fantastic place. And he, here's what he thinks is Eli calling him. He goes to Eli. Eli says, I didn't say a word. He goes back and says, and that happens two times. And then Eli remembers, well, perhaps it's God. He's, he's supposed to be set apart after all. He, he is a Nazarite from birth. And Eli says to him, next time, next time say, speak, for your servant is listening. Your servant is listening. Usually I say to God, speak, so that I can weigh up whether I want to serve you in that way. Lord, would you show me what your plans are for my life so I can just survey them for a minute and see if I'm in or not? Samuel says, God, I'm in. I'm in. Now tell me what it is. And there's a huge difference between the two, isn't there? It's subtle, but it's massive. Because I'm always second-guessing God to make sure I'm up for it. And Samuel goes, well, I'm up for it. What is it? And in fact, it was a pretty hard call. The first prophecy that Samuel had to bring was what would bring down Eli's house, his household and his sons, because of their behavior. And then, because Samuel was willing... He became the means through which revival broke out up and down uh, the land. Not one of Samuel's words, it says, would fall to the ground from Dan and Bathsheba right the way through the land. From Dan to Bathsheba was like saying from Land's End to John O'Groats. From the top to the bottom, people began to hear God speak. And then there's some detail of the uh, renewal and revival that broke out in chapter 7. You've noticed, if you've got your Bibles open, that we've missed chapters 4 through to 6. You can read those in your own time. Uh, fascinating little story, little insight into what's going on. They had a little fight with the Philistines, and the Philistines nicked the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's bad news, isn't it? Because the Ark of the Covenant was the means that you could deal with your sin. It's like waking up tomorrow morning and saying there's no cross. Can you imagine that? Waking up tomorrow morning and there's no cross. And after a little while, God plays a few jokes on the Philistines. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple. This will sort the Israelites out. They wake up the next morning and they're God Dagon's lying on the floor. That's a bit strange. So they pop him back up. Next night he's lying on the floor but his head, his arms and his legs have broken off. And nobody's been in there. Uh, and then they moved him, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, so metaphorically they moved the presence of God to somewhere else, uh, and, and all kinds of diseases break out in the city. In the end, they say, we've got to get rid of it, we're going to send it back. And they put it on a cart, and they send the cart back into Israel's country. 
You don't mess with the presence of God. You don't mess with the cross and all that it stands for. But imagine being without it for a moment. What would you do with your sin then? Imagine if, imagine if we weren't sure whether today the cross was real, whether the blood could cleanse me today. I'm ruined without the blood of Jesus. And you are too. So let's pick up one theme, final theme. Sadly, after all that Samuel had led the people in, they go, do you know what, Samuel? Do you know what? We want to be like everyone else. Have you ever said that? How much of your day is spent trying to be like everybody else? When you look in the mirror, you probably don't want to be like you. You want to be like somebody else. A very moving part in um, whatever the latest Narnia film's called. Come on, or Treader, that'll do. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And Lucy wants to be like Susan. Because she thinks, she perceives that Susan is beautiful. And there's this moment in the film when, when God says, okay, look what it would be like if I gave you what you want. And there's a scene in the future and they're going, where's Lucy? God wants you to be like you, the way he's calling you to be. And yet we waste most of our time going, I'd like to be like Everybody else. And they essentially said, we want to have a king, because everyone else has got a king. And the hardest part about wanting to be like everybody else is that they were rejecting God as their king. Yes, that's the God that had rescued them, saved them, taken them through the wilderness, the God who'd given them a means of dealing with their sin, the God who'd taken them into the promised land. Yeah, that God, they go, now, we'll be like, we'll, we'll, we'll say no to that, because we just want to be like everybody else. How sad is that? How sad is that? When you say, and when I say, I don't want all this that you have for me, because I just want to be like everybody else. No. No, absolutely. So what is it in your life where you're missing all the God stuff because you want to be like everybody else? Samuel didn't know what to do, and God said, if they want to be like everybody else, then I'm going to warn them what that's like. And you can read the verses. It wasn't that great. God says, don't have a king. That'll be the worst thing you can do, because this will happen, and that'll happen, and it was not good, pleasant, or nice. But they didn't listen to the warnings, because such is the pull to be like everybody else. No, I just want to be like everybody else. I want to be miserable like everybody else. I want to wonder what my life's all about, just like everybody else. And they say no to all of this, to be like everybody else. And so often we live in that spirit, and God warns us every day through his word about what it might be like to be like everybody else. But then, you know, sadder still, in a way, God lets them. When you walk out there this morning, you go, do you know this week, I'm going to be like everybody else. God says, okay. Okay. Sometimes I wish God would fight for me. 
Because I'm that stupid. But God says, okay. Don't say I haven't told you. But okay. And then amazingly, amazingly, God loved them still. They wanted a king to be like everybody else. They were rejecting God's purpose for them. God warns them. God lets them. And then God loves them still. He says, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject you. You've rejected him, but God's not going to reject you. Why? Because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Covenant. I have chosen you, says God, for myself. And you can reject me now all your days. But still I'll love you. Still I'll be there for you. Still I'll long for my purpose to be made known in your life. Still I'll hang on when you let go. Still I'll be there when you turn around. Amazing. God loves you so much that this week you go out the door, you go, I'm going to be like everybody else. You come back in next week and God says, I'm still here for you. And I'm still longing that you'll move in my fullness. I'm still longing that you'll have my purpose made known in your lives. And more than that, incredible grace. The very thing God said don't do, they did do. And then God turned it around in a phenomenal way. Because God would use the kings through King David to open up the vista of an amazing future that would be theirs. Because through David, God would say, one day a king's coming and his kingdom will never end. And we wait still for that to be received in all its fullness. They rejected him. And God even used their rebellion for his gracious purpose. You chose a king, I'll give you a king. And his name will be Jesus. And his kingdom will know no end. So come. Come to communion. Not because you've surrendered everything, but come because you haven't. Come not because you've got it all sussed, but because you've got bits that have fallen apart and fallen off. Come not because there's something in you that says, God, you must be thrilled if I show up. But because God says, you belong to me, and I've made you my own.